You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we're readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models in analysis. Our aim is for this podcast to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer. I, I most commonly refer to him as Dad, uh, Bill Smead. Uh, Dad, are you ready to have some fun today? Sure am. We're glad everyone has joined us for this episode. I think we're going to hear a great American story and walk away with some big thoughts on certain businesses and the media industry at large. Lisa Napoli is joining us to talk about her book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. Lisa has published three other books, including her 2016 book, Ray and Joan, a story about Ray Kroc and his wife, and her newest book, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, which is a story about the founding mothers of NPR. Lisa has worked at the New York Times, Marketplace, and MSNBC as well. Before we introduce Lisa, is there anything, Bill, that you're looking forward to you know, for our discussion? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this book with Lisa, considering the pending Discovery Warner Media merger and the comments around CNN in this deal. I totally agree. Uh, I also uh, look forward to, and I'm sure all of our podcast listeners look forward to hearing your best Ted Turner impression as well, um, which I think will be quite a treat later in our discussion. So are you ready to go? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Lisa, we loved your book. Thanks for joining us today, first off. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you read it. So, Lisa, we'll start with what inspired you to write the book. I started my career at CNN back when CNN was a little teeny nothing. It was uh, not the very beginning. I wasn't an original, as they call themselves, the people who were there at the very start. But when I was a teenager, uh, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, I was an aspiring journalist from a working class family. And, you know, newspapers were supposedly dead in 1980s, early 1980s. So, uh, a classmate of mine saw that this little place was starting in the base of the World Trade Center called CNN. And he told me, you know, you should, you should look it up. Maybe they'll give you an internship. My first summer home from college in 1981. And sure enough, I called them up from the little junky video story, store where I was working as a clerk for the summer. And I dialed 555-1212, anybody old enough to know what that is will know that that's how I got the number. And uh, I, I dialed the number I got, I don't remember that. And guy answered the phone, desk. And I said, uh, um, is, this, is this cable news network? And the guy said, uh, yes. And I said, I, what do you want? And I said, well, I, I'm a, you know, a college student. What do you want? And basically I got an internship at CNN, which set the course of my next several years 
on because I worked there for three summers during college. And, and in answer to your question, and sorry it took so long, Basically, decades later, I had written that book about Ray Kroc and Joan Kroc, and my CNN-era friend, Sid Leader, called me up and said, you got to write the history, the oral history of how CNN started. Nobody's ever done that. And I didn't do a classic oral history, but I decided that with CNN's 40th anniversary coming up, this book was published in the year of its anniversary, which also happened to be the first year of the pandemic, which was 2020. Um, I basically decided that that was the, the way to go, to, to, to go back and look at who Ted Turner was, who he wasn't, and all these crazy people, crazier than me, because I was a kid, I didn't know any better, but there were people who moved and uprooted their lives and traded in safe careers to go work for this basically lunatic of a man in Atlanta, Georgia, which was not a world-class uh, you know, media capital as it has become in large part because of Ted Turner. So that's that's what's prompted me to write this book. Don't ever feel like you're being long winded. Uh, if that's your fear, you're in good company here. So um, so your, your stories are going to be great. So I'll, I'll start us off. So you, you start out your book with Jack Rice and Channel 17 in Atlanta, um, kind of the you know, the predecessor to what we all know as Turner. Um, in the TV business. He was excited about what Americans would want from TV in the 50s. Could you teach our listeners a little bit about this opening character and, and, and his company and his station? Yes. Well, you know, I, I'm so glad you asked that because it, it, and I'm so glad that you love books and that you value history because I'm told all the time that people don't. But I, I of course, am in love with the idea of understanding how we got where we are today and the idea that television in the 50s, you know, and I, I knew a little bit of TV history, but the tele, television in the 50s was a place where there was a lot of innovation, but the trouble was that busting the triopoly of the existing three networks was extremely difficult. And Jack Rice was one of the crazy pioneers. Uh, he was wealthy enough to be able to throw money around and get into the business of uh, what they called the lunatic fringe of television, which was UHF, which for anybody who's old enough to remember was that part of the dial that was really difficult to tune in. And that was sort of the 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 never never land or the nether netherland of the television world at that time because it was a place where regular people regular people meaning people with money who weren't involved with the networks could potentially experiment and there were there as as i say there were people who were willing to experiment and jack rice was one of them he was a wealthy guy you know it was sort of a vanity thing to get into uh, tv if you could afford to do it like buying sports teams uh became and um for for individuals for wealthy individuals and jack just saw this as a potential piece in a bigger puzzle of what we would now call pay-per-view. Uh, the idea that people at home, as late as, as early in television's history of, as the 50s, wanted to be able to dial up stuff that wasn't being served up by these three networks. And so this repository for experimentation basically didn't get very far because everything was tied to leasing landlines, lines, 
and feeding out material over telephone lines. And the technology just wasn't there yet for it to be financially viable. Uh, and as you know, all you know well, and as you, you two know well, and as all your listeners will know well, because you're all innovators and pioneers and, and risk takers, uh, that the perfect storm hadn't arrived yet when Jack Rice uh, got into the, the UHF television game, uh, and he just, you know, didn't work out for him. He was, he was one of those people lost in the dustbin of history until I wrote about him a little bit in my book. Well, and I caught a little, it was almost like a footnote and a financial statement, because um, it not only didn't work out for Jack Rice, but it didn't work out for some investors out there. You mentioned in your book that an investment banker went out and sold stock in Rice Broadcasting with no proof of concept or even revenues from, from your from your book, did, did you just find this strange or was it just indicative of the potential that people thought, you know, what could be in the TV business? Well, as you mentioned in the intro, I was a technology reporter uh, in, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So nothing surprises me. And the, it was interesting <laughs> to see that people were, you know, doing, selling things that didn't exist or didn't have any proof of potential long before the dot-com era came about. And so I loved reading that uh, it was just enthusiasm. It was excitement. It was building, um, uh, explaining to people what potential could be. And people were buying into that. They were buying into this potential uh, in a different way than Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and all of that. I mean, they were buying into this idea that people had fallen in love with this television thing that had only been around at that point 10, 15 years, you know, in any in any measurable way, um, and wanted to invest in a future. And of course, they were right, you know, it's just they were way, way, way too early. Lisa, we, we love a book by John Kenneth Galbraith called A Short History of Financial Euphoria. And almost all major major euphoria episodes include something new, right? That that's always a key. And lastly, I got to mention I, I wrote sports for the Walla Walla Union Bulletin in 1970 through 78 through 1980. So uh, I have a little bit in common with you there. So you, you made what, a better career choice than I did, but yes. <laughs> I don't know. You you point out uh, three towns that kicked off the cable era. Uh, uh, Mananoy City, Pennsylvania, Tuckerman, Arkansas, and Astoria, Oregon, where Cole's grandfather was a, a Columbia River ship pilot. It, it was an, ante an, an antenna that connected the houses. These are not major cities. Your book touches on what the airwave broadcast audience was in rural areas of America, like Alaska and small towns in the Midwest. Explain to the listeners what, what the predecessor to cable companies were in these markets. Well, I found this interesting, too, because I, as a young woman, after I left CNN, I was working in a local television station in North Carolina, and I knew some men who'd invested early in uh, this thing called mobile phones and uh, bought the licenses and, you know, cashed in big. And so knowing, not knowing that cable... Let me step back. As growing up in Brooklyn, New York, we didn't get cable uh, till much later in the game. My father would read about it and long to have it, but we didn't have it. And it turns out what I didn't realize, what I learned while I was writing this book, is that cable was invented to bring regular television 
to the good old folk in smaller towns, mountainous towns, places where the, the signals wouldn't ordinarily reach. And the idea that cable really was a utility when it started. It wasn't this this sexy, you know, multi-gazillion dollar business like you guys invest in. It was really a utility and it was a mom and pop utility. It was a guy in town, usually it was, you know, somebody who owned an electronics store. Uh, it actually, it wasn't even an electronics store, it was an appliance store, who got who was wise enough to get into the game of cable and wiring homes so that they could receive this signal of maybe only two stations uh, that were close enough by to to map. So it was fascinating for me to read this uh, really simplistic roots. Uh, it was and and that there was tremendous money made and that there were so many players in those early days, which of course is true if you look back at the auto industry, if you look back at every industry. Uh, there's there's uh, all kinds of innovators at the start and then you know everybody gets gobbled up lisa what would you say was the biggest consumer benefit that was provided in those areas and then secondarily uh they originally called uh, cable tv toll tv and had congressional committees was this just classic lobbying by the major networks nbc cbs and abc to keep competition out well, yes, yes, but but before that, really, when you ask what the benefit was of cable, it really literally was just allowing a, a nice family in a more rural area to get regular TV that they couldn't get otherwise because of the of the technological deficiency of both the signal and the receivers. Uh, so cable was completely a utility. Uh, you know, we talk about the last mile. Uh, that was the last mile. Then, of course, as always happens it, with great innovative minds, somebody said, well, if, if somebody, if, if regular family X in Oregon has to pay to get regular TV, we need to make it something a little bit more robust than that, you know, so that they don't feel bad that they're paying for something that other people in big cities are getting for free. And that's where the innovation began. And of course, that's where the three networks who dominated everything, radio first and then television, got angry or worried because they didn't want uh, anybody to be able to encroach on what was their triopoly. So it's a very complicated and textured story. And I hope I've told it in this book for both the layperson, like my literary agent, who when I first told him this said, cable TV, how, what a snoozer, what a snoozer. And I said, no, no, it's really not a snoozer. It's actually really interesting. But um, which is why Ted Turner makes it so much more interesting, because Ted Turner made everything interesting. But it, it's a really interesting story of this technological arc of the 20th century. You know, you guys will appreciate this. I say this all the time about McDonald's. Really, this book is the same as my book about Ray Kroc and how he started McDonald's, because the only reason that Ray Kroc was able to take this idea that these two brothers in the desert here in California, where I live, had created to a wider scale is because of technology. And if, you know, if that, if they had, people had been making things, food quickly before that, not in quite that same measure, but it was technology that had enabled it to accelerate. And it's the same exact thing with media and communications and television. Lisa, I wrote a book uh, in, in two, 2006 about the financial crisis, anticipating the financial crisis called the new boomer austerity. And the literary agent tried for a year to 
find somebody to get interested in it. So yeah, you guys, you guys will share literary agent frustrations <laughs> together. It'll be a good a drink worthy conversation. <laughs> so, so Lisa, you, you, you talk about Ted Turner next. You kind of open with his family, his background, his father, his billboard business um, that the family had. Ted's opening act as a young man is in many ways to save the billboard is business uh, from his dad's partner. And if I, if I read your book correctly, he effectively issues stock to purchase back the business. Uh, was this, you know, desperation in this capital transaction or was this really brilliance for Ted? I think a little bit of both. Um, you know, it, it's such an interesting story that Ted Turner could have easily inherited what his father had built up in the billboard business, which, by the way, at its time was a premier technology, a premier media and communications concern. Um, but Ted was bored with it. But he was also trying to avenge his father's death. His father had committed suicide uh largely believed to be because of the deal that he had made to grow his business, which he felt that he had botched. I mean, he had underlying issues, of course, as well. But but Ted, you know, as a young man, could have just taken what was left of this business and run with it or just, you know, sat back and gone yachting, which was what he loved to do. But he wanted to find a way to retain or piece together what his father had had built again and then you know after he did that he wanted to take it to the next level and of course his father's advisors thought that Ted was a punk but uh, they had to execute or they didn't have to execute what he what he asked but they they um, were surprised by him and they were surprised by how how brazen he was but but Ted really had He's an interesting guy in that in the same way that Ray Kroc is. He had a vision, but not a vision that was so clear cut and linear. It was really, I think, more opportunistic. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I think it's a very smart way of doing business. I don't have to tell you guys, you know, that's that opportunity is what it's all about. And, and he basically uh, wanted to stitch this company back together and then he wanted to take it to the next level by getting into other media because he found billboards kind of dull. And so I think that moment in time was a really important one. Obviously, if he hadn't done what he'd done, uh, we might not be having this conversation today. Somebody else would have been the pioneer in those early days. T totally agree with you. And when I was reading this, I kind of look at this. I mean, we're big fans of The Godfather, and Bill's already kind of quoted it, so I'll run with it. This was kind of where Ted made his bones, if you will. Um, to your point, it was one of those great moments in his career. Um, he had this weird opportunity, though, where he could take these billboard profits and cash flows, and he could reinvest those back into the TV business. How big of an advantage, you know, from your research, would you say that that, you know, advantage was? In other words, the fact that he could take profits from a very successful medium, billboards, and plow that into a medium that needed a lot of investment, which was cable, TV, and news. Mm -hmm. Well, look, you guys are the business guys. I'm just the business reporter. But I know I couldn't, you know, the average person couldn't have, have done what he did. He, was, he, he started with this advantage, and he was very wise about it. And, and a more conservative person, uh, fiscally conservative person, might have just kept going the course and continuing with billboards and growing and growing that, or just staying with what he had, because he had, you know, a very, very 
positive market position, but instead he used his ambition and his his fearlessness that was another thing you know this is at a moment in time and again this story is repeated over and over again in history and will be for the rest of our lives somebody who was at the cutting edge of this technology he got into radio he hated radio he thought radio was bunk so then he back ended into this deal where he got that jack rice uhf television station and um didn't didn't trade cash for it it was you know a stock situation and he basically acquired this dark horse to put it lightly of a, of a station and kept playing with it and investing in it and then much to the chagrin of his advisors invested in another one in charlotte which was really in trouble um and and basically played around and whoops, there's there's accident of timing that happens with love and all kinds of other things. Basically, uh, along comes a satellite marriage with cable, uh, the commercial satellite, and the capacity to connect it to cable. And that's when Ted heard about that. That's when he had his aha moment and said, this is going to transcend this little junky UHF station I've got where I'm playing old movies and, and sports. And make it able to to go to to broadcast or or to uh, reach a wider audience and that's what i want to do i want to beat those networks which is something that people have been trying to do at that point for a couple of decades it wasn't just money though because as you pointed out in your book one of the coors heirs tried to take a shot at the news business and and that that didn't work out well so so you know it's not money so do you primarily just describe that to ted versus others you know, I do and I don't just because, it. you know, we always say this, what makes a book a hit book or a song a hit song or why did you fall in love with that person as opposed to this person? It really is a lot of, of kismet that you can't predict. If you could predict it, every single thing we would do would flourish. Every relationship we had, every business deal we did. But I really do think it was an explosive, incredible moment in time. And he was well poised for it. He was the right person because he was the risk taker. He had various assets and interests and had the smart people working for him who were willing to put up with his craziness and the volatility of everything. And it all just, you know, it was a combustible moment in time. And, you know, just it's better for me as a storyteller that it happened to be Ted who told it. You know, Ted it happened with or under his watch that it happened because he's just such a fantastic character. I ironically, we're, we sit in Phoenix and the billboard business is actually still thriving quite well, mostly thanks to the Trilores Association. So uh, Ted started, starts his life as this unabashedly conservative Southerner who punishes people with his intellectualism, names his children after characters from Gone with the Wind. How, how, how do you look at his transformation from that to Democrat, philanthropist that thinks the world is too small for humanity? Well, I, first of all, I'm not so sure. I don't know if Ted Turner is a registered Democrat. And one of the, you know, with the McDonald's book, I'm constantly defying the, the myths and the inaccuracies of that movie, The Founder, which are many, including and especially the fact that Ray Kroc 
screwed the brothers out of a royalty. He did not. He never promised a royalty to the McDonald brothers. He didn't screw anybody out of anything. He bought something fair and square. They named their price. He came up with the money. It killed him to come up with the money, but he did. And he bought them out and they went away. In this case, the mythology is, and this was a hard sell in this book, because when we went to sell this book, it was 2019. And I don't have to tell anybody anything about what was going on then. And so Basically, the mythology is that CNN is this left-wing network, that Ted Turner is this liberal married to Jane, who was married to Jane Fonda, he's this environmentalist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's interesting and why this story is so important is that none of that was true. First of all, the idea that network news had a point of view, yes, my father was a conservative man and he didn't love Dan Rather. He, you know, he liked Walter Cronkite. He felt that it had a bit of a slant, but the idea that it was anything like it became was just untenable, unfathomable to anybody in the late mm. 70s when cable news started. It's so hard to imagine to remember a time that news was not something most people wanted to watch. The idea that anybody would watch it 24-7 was outrageous, and that's why he had a hard time to start. But the other interesting thing about Ted Turner is that he was a card-carrying Republican, again, back at a time when card-carrying Republican or Democrat meant something completely different than it does today. He was a, a, a conservative. He wasn't politically active then. He was, um, but he wasn't, he wasn't what people perceive him to be today, purely because of his marriage to Jane Fonda, which happened long after CNN was created. CNN was created because Ted Turner had this wild vision that this marriage of satellite and cable was going to change the communications industry, which, by the way, was right, and which, by the way, he wasn't the only person, but there were several people at that time who were, who were audacious enough to take that risk. But he didn't sit there in it. Atlanta, Georgia, and say, I'm going to start, I can't do the accent, you can, I, I'm going to start this cable <laughs> channel to propagate left wing, blah, blah, blah. No, nobody, nobody imagined that there'd be a market for news 24-7. And even the, the skilled journalists who he'd hired to work there and the kids, people like me who are just out of school, or in my case, I wasn't even out of school yet, the people he hired didn't, didn't come into Atlanta with an agenda to propagate anything. They were just thrilled that they could get jobs outside of the networks, which only had a half hour of network news every night. And they were going to have this playground where they were going to have news 24-7. But even the man Ted entrusted to create the blueprint for the first CNN, this hard-nosed journalist, Reese Schoenfeld, had no idea what he was going to put on the air 24 hours a day. He, he was freaked out by the prospect of having to fill that much airtime. And it was only in 1996 when, by the way, MSNBC and Fox News Channel debuted their 24-7 cable entries that CNN started to tilt in any measurable direction. And it, you know, really tilted in the last five years, 10 years, whatever, you know, as, as the Fox News Channel mindset took over. But that's what's so damned, excuse my language, hard to explain to people. And it just drives me nuts because I want everybody to step back and look at the history because the history is fascinating. And it really is whatever side of the political spectrum or wherever you sit on the political spectrum, 
you if you if you agree that we're in the decline of the universe it dates back to the creation of 24-hour cable news not because of an agenda that was propagated at all but because the very creation of cable news allowed for the the dissolution of serious journalism because what you had to do you know Reese Schoenfeld's vision was now we would have a camera on an event and we'd watch it unfold before our very eyes as opposed to before it was packaged up and delivered in a news report. Yes, there were some conversational shows and interview shows, but mostly what you saw on television were packaged news reports that were edited by editors and journalists and vetted. And now it's just a scream fest and because it's the cheapest way to do it. And that's that dissolution in, in both television news and in our society, in our social discourse, in our politics, has occurred from 1980. I'm, I'm, you can't see me right now, but I, my hand is going on a downward slope. And that's, that's how we got where we are today. And I think it's so important for people to understand that. Lisa, I, I will never forget uh, when shock and awe hit and the reporters from CNN were, you know, filming out through the window of the hotel. I, I, I stayed in the office for an extra six or seven hours that night and called people uh, with, with, with that. Uh, we're wondering if uh, now that the ownership is changing, that, that, the, uh, uh, that, that CNN will go back to maybe its roots on that score. Uh, Ted hated the liberal bias of the New York media uh, CNN was a chance to get out of that. Now looking at CNN and Columbus Circle in Manhattan, many would argue that that is the bias. Do you think this historical criticism of media is appropriate? Uh, can it be corrected? Uh, you know, we're thinking of the two extremes it went to, and I, I happen to be a, a, a person that loves to consume news, and I, I can't handle any of them. Oh, well, it's it's not news. You're watching theater when you watch cable news. With, you know, respect to the very few, there are people, of course, who work in it who are excellent journalists, but they can't practice it anymore because it's become theatrics. But you know what? If you go back in time, my, my most recent book is about the creation of public radio uh, through the lens of four women who helped make it happen in the 1970s. If you go back in time in media history, we've always always had a problem. When radio was created, people thought that was the end of the universe because that was going to be a mediated reality. They didn't, critics didn't like the screech and the sound of the radio. They didn't want people like me, like I've just been ranting. They didn't want to hear that. They they thought that that was not genteel. Uh, it was not advancing discourse. You know, newspapers, even before there was broadcast media, there, you know, newspapers all had points of view, and you only read a newspaper that reflected the point of view that you wanted to consume, unless you were so open-minded that you bought five newspapers. And back then, a news junkie might, because that was the only way to get your news, uh, your news junkiedom uh, fulfilled. But, you know, what's going to happen in the future is more theatrics. It's not going to go back to 
pure play journalism. And there's lots of people who are talking about this and trying to experiment with it. And, you know, a couple guys just recently announced, uh, you know, some highfalutin, newfangled journalistic efforts that's going to go back to the roots. I, I honestly, the problem is, you know, okay, let me step back. When CNN started, the people who were hired for it were regular looking people. They were broadcasters, but there was nothing vavumi about CNN in the earliest days. And as soon as there came competition, they had to start vavuming. Uh, and, and that's the problem is that, you know, if, if one guy does this, you have to do something to claim, stake your claim to differentiate yourself. And as long as there's competition in that world, uh, it's just I don't I don't think it's going to change. I don't think I don't see how it can change. You, you talk about this in your book, um, this tussle between entertainment and news, and it's you know it's been around from early on. That's why news you pointed out was so short um, because you need advertisers, and the way to get advertisers is entertain people. Um, and you mentioned in the book that the sixty four thousand dollar question was one of these early game show successes. Um, do you look at that as that's going to be a constant tension? in the future for TV content? It's, it's true about everything. I, I used to work, I worked in the earliest days on the web, back when nobody except lunatics like me would work on the web because, you know, other journalists had their jobs at the New York Times or fill in the blank, you know, esteemed publication. And they didn't want to be sullied, you know, by, by being in this online medium. Every medium, has this challenge. Every restaurant has this challenge. Every organization has this challenge that, you know, if you own a market, if you're in a, in a privileged position to own a market and then competition comes along, you have to amp it up and compete. And competing often means uh, losing what your essence is. I mean, arguably, the, the McDonald's was real hamburger, buns cooked, baked by a local bakery, produce sourced locally when the McDonald's brothers were running it out in San Bernardino. I mean, that's that's how it went even before that, they before they went to San Bernardino. But the minute you start trying to duplicate that over and over and over again, you have to lose some sort of standard or quality. And that's sadly... Uh, that's the sad state of the universe, which is why I write history books now, because I love reading well, about it, but it's hard to participate in it. So uh, we're thinking of Fox News and Roger Ailes kind of when we ask this, uh, does, does the differentiation from others always create the next opportunity? Well, it did for Roger Ailes and Fox News. I worked for Fox before Roger Ailes came along and made it Fox. In fact, there were a bunch of CNNers, my boss at CNN, got hired to help start the Fox News service. Uh, and, and basically in the, in the early 90s it was, to, to compete with CNN, even before there was a Fox News channel. And we were cut from the same cloth, cloth as the old CNN. We were creating good old-fashioned news reports. Uh, it wasn't a channel yet. It was just a news service. And then along came Roger Ailes. The whole media deregulation happened. Um, so many things happened. But Roger Ailes 
tied up with Murdoch, who had a you know thing for Ted Turner, a thing against Ted Turner, not for him. And uh, basically, the rest is history. And he was an evil genius. Uh, you know, he he recognized that if you propagate a point of view, you he he recognized an opening and he seized it. And he had Murdoch's backing, and they made it happen. And that basically did what you mentioned the Coors brothers tried to do years before, but were unsuccessful at doing, partially because they were impatient with it, because they weren't media people. They were investing in something that wasn't their core business, and they just didn't have the, you know, they didn't stick with it. But basically, what happened was, um, over time, slowly, I mean, slowly meaning not overnight, it forced CNN to change. It forced CNN to come up with an alternate way of doing business because the way they had been doing business wasn't going to cut it in the face of what what uh, Fox was now doing. So back to the history of this, because your points earlier on, you know, where we got to where we are, I think is wonderful. Um, you actually start out with the Pigeon and the Pony Express and part of your book, and you bring us to the satellite. Can you can you explain how important the satellite was and kind of what the precursors were to that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I start here in Southern California uh, just as television is dawning. There, are, I can't remember exactly how many sets there were in, in the Los Angeles area, but it wasn't many. There were so few that people had to go to the window of the local appliance store to see the event I'm about to describe to you, which is that a little girl fell in a well and a very enterprising local broadcaster who was really a technician as much as he was a broadcaster. He wasn't an on-air person. He recognized that they should broadcast this terrible incident of trying to rescue this little girl from a well in the suburbs uh, on television. And and he, he rigged it up so that that was possible to do, but that was unheard of. The idea that you would turn on the TV in the middle of the night and see this operation under, you know, happening rescue operation was unthinkable and very exciting for people. You know, wow, that thing that we spent some money on that's in the TV, in, in, in the living room that is only on for several hours a day now has this really exciting, scary, nail-biting experience that anybody could relate to, a little girl falling in a well. And so that's the precursor to the creation of the, the satellite, the commercial satellite. And I, I detail in the book how that debuted and how that sparked Jerry Levin and Ted Turner and various other people into thinking, wow, okay, this commercial satellite is going to allow us to be on all the time to reach a wider audience. And now what the heck are we going to do with it? I never finished the story before. Ted Turner didn't sit around and say, I'm going to create a news network and, and polarize the world. He sat around and said, I want to use this cool technology. And wait, okay, this little thing called HBO is doing the movie thing. And I know it's a hassle to get the rights to movies anyway, so I'm not going to do that. Wow, I'm not going to do sports because sports I need for my Channel 17. I own the Braves. I own the Hawks. I need to, uh, you know, keep that for my cash cow, Channel 17, the, the UHF station he had that he created as the super station at that point. I'm skipping over a big, broad 
strokes of history. So he sat around with his main salespeople and said, men, they were all men, and, and said, what can we do? Somebody said, how about music? And, and, and they said, nah, that's stupid. Nobody would watch music 24-7. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and so they said, well, let's just do uh, news. And Ted said, news? News is boring. I hate news. I don't even watch the news. I barely even read the news. But he recognized that that was the one area that was left. And so that's how he staked his claim on news. And literally no one believed anybody would want to watch it. But because he had a track record, even though he was seen as a loose cannon and kind of crazy, uh, he, he managed to do it he had to invest a lot of his own money in it to get that far. Uh, and now I'm going off off your original question, but it you know it was it was really an epiphany that he had at the concept of this power of this technology, not the epiphany of propaganda or let's you know put, let's uh, promote anything. It was just literally it was a use of technology that he was well positioned to take advantage of. And to follow on that, and I, and by the way, your your conversation earlier on the tragedy, kind of, we're going to come back to that because I think it's a wonderful topic for your book uh, and, and TV's history. Um, the satellite bills were very expensive, though, and you do lay out in the book kind of the cumbersome nature of making those payments and what that costs per month. Um, we look at that as the cost to distribute, and some people never made it out of that. Um, did, did you also kind of think of that as a theme across your book, that this idea that the cost to get this to market in some cases, you know, regularly killed people, and at least Ted made it through that? Well, yes, but, but what was so interesting for me was learning that satellite time was cheaper than leasing the, the phone company lines over which television line television signals had previously only been able to chat to travel there was no other way to distribute them and so the idea that i mean of course now AT&T as you know well owns the world and they got the last laugh but the big argument back in the 60s and 70s and even in the 50s was that you couldn't be in the television business if you weren't paying a huge bill to the phone company. And the phone company um, might give a deal, obviously, to its biggest consumers, the network Triopoly, but they weren't going to give you or me or innovators a deal. And so that was the that was the impediment, as they always say, you know, the printing press. Now anybody can have a blog, a newspaper, because I can sit in my room anywhere and create a podcast or create a, a television show or a an, uh, an audio or a newspaper. Um, back then, the the barriers to entry were enormous. And yes, you know, Ted Turner could get into it because he could afford to lease space on the satellite um, and and hire people who navigated the leasing of the of the the lines when they needed to to flesh it out with with telephone lines too. Um, that was you know real the real backbone engine of CNN that was not possible five years earlier. It would just not have been possible to create a, a news channel then. As I, as I say now, when I give talks about this book, I hold up my iPhone and I say, this is a TV studio. But back in 1979, when they were getting CNN ready, you know, they had the largest array, I think it was the largest uh, non-military array of satellite dishes, I think in the world at the time. 
because that's what you needed, these massive dishes in the back of this old country club that Ted Turner bought where he, where he installed CNN, um, to, to engine, if you will, the transmission of the news out and the collection of it in from various points around the world. So it is, it is um, really incredible to think about how far we've come in 40 years and how that was just back 40 years ago, the only way, you know, before that, I talk about this in the book, it was film. And if you shot film, even if you could afford to have 100 people out there shooting film everywhere you want, I mean, 100 isn't very many, but say you did, uh, they still had to get that film back somewhere where it could get processed, which anybody who's ever processed film knows is not a simple proposition. And then it had to get sent to wherever it was going to be broadcast from. And I talk in the book a little bit about the installation of Queen Elizabeth uh, when she was installed as queen, the race to be the first to bring that incredible footage to not just the American public, but I focus on the United States in this book, to the world. And it, yeah. you know, now, again, I would be there with my iPhone. A hundred of us could be there with our iPhones and we're all camera people. But then it was a nightmarish proposition and one that you know challenged a lot of people to be very creative. Lisa, as a uh, five-and-a-half-year-old NBA basketball fan, I went to watch my Boston Celtics uh, in 1963, and the whole thing was preempted to show the funeral procession of the President of the United States, uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, to talk, talk about how, what kind of value that created uh, in television, and then secondly, as kind of an add-on to that, talk about how important for CNN the uh, assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan was. Well, that's what I find so interesting about the creation of just about anything new. Uh, it, at first, there are people who are confused about what will it do. And when television started, it wasn't seen as uh, a, a communications medium having to do with news. It was seen as an entertainment medium, perhaps. And then more people got the fever uh, and loved it. They loved having the entertainment in their living room as opposed to having to go out to see it. And uh, then it became clear that maybe they should have a public service component of news, which is really all it was in the very beginning, an eat your vegetables kind of proposition. And then it grew and grew from there. So what happened was when, when the president was shot in 1963, it wasn't clear, um, you know, first it wasn't clear exactly what happened. And the networks ran around to try to transmit this terrible, incident, which became the assassination, uh, and then the aftermath, and they stayed on the air for the entire weekend after after this terrible event had occurred. Um, but they didn't stay on 24-7. I, I had always heard that they had. They, they did shut down at night um, because there wasn't anything to say at night, but they, they did go uh, constant as we would know it today, as if something terrible happened today, uh, they would just keep transmitting. And that 
showed to people that it had a value beyond just entertainment, that there was a reason to tune in for, for hard, hard news, as we call it, um, developing news, and not just um, at nighttime to get the news report the way you'd read the dinner over, the, the newspaper over dinner or something like that. So, so that was a seminal moment, but the technology still was not there for it to be uh, what, it, what it became not very long, well, not very long, about 20 years later. 20 years later, a little under 20 years later, President Reagan was shot and that was their proof of concept was here it is, an assassination attempt. You didn't see it live, but it was like live in that moments after the assassination attempt, it had been recorded on video and it could be you know, just rolled and rolled and rolled over again um, and, and analyzed and analyzed over again. And I, in the book, I look at the two instances and I, I contrast them because the whole mentality was so different just 20 years later, uh, not only in the respect for the presidency, which, which was evident in, in both situations, but, um, but more so in the idea of the reverence for the, the gravity of this event and how to tell the story. And now, you know, something maybe explodes at the street corner where I am and it's live breaking news. It's, you know, up to the minute news. It's not really news. But these were two very serious news instances in between. I don't I think I mentioned it in the book about when President Ford, the assassination attempt on President Ford, that was obviously in the 70s. So sandwiched in between these two, also pre videotape, pre satellite, you know, easy satellite transmission. And it took a long time for that that film to be developed and broadcast. And you know, in in the '60s, it was seen as disrespectful to broadcast the Zapruder tape uh, or the Zapruder film. It was seen as disrespectful. Now, you know, I I didn't talk about this in the book, but as a young woman, I was sitting in the newsroom when the shuttle Challenger exploded. And to be completely graphically honest, I I pretty much lost my mind after having to watch it 5,000 times for my job to write the the video, write to the video of that, if you remember this moment um, of of the Challenger ascending and then blasting into bits. I mean, that, that, did a number on me as because I'm a human and it was horrible. Same thing with 9-11. I think a lot, I don't think we talk enough about how much, not just 9-11 and the root causes of it and the fact that it happened, but the fact that people sat there and watched these buildings fall down like a violent video game. Um, I think where a lot of our society is deadened to the severity of what we see on the air, and you really can see evidence that you, of that when you look at the coverage in the 60s, which you can on YouTube. If you want to watch it, it's all there, and it's really fascinating. Lisa, your your book kind of highlights that that Ted didn't really like the if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality, uh, but yet in a way, like you're you're discussing, it it really highlighted the the medium and content and its importance. Uh, did did he? Did he ever rectify that in his mind, and did he just make so much money on the whole deal that it became less important? (laughs) Well, it's really important to remember that Ted Turner, he started it, but he didn't run it. He didn't run it day to day. And when, in the very beginning, he tried to insert 
any sort of opinion into the operation of it, he was tamped down. He was pushed back um, because he he himself, when he started it, wanted journalists to run it. He knew he didn't, he wasn't a journalist, that that wasn't his his bailiwick. So he, you know, he didn't like the bleed at Leeds mentality. Uh, today, he says that it was his finest achievement, the creation of CNN. But when he's talking about it, he's talking about the old CNN, the original CNN. And the people who started CNN didn't want a bleed at Leeds mentality. I mean, I, I start the book with this incident here in L.A. about the little girl in the well, and I kind of end the book a little bit on uh, an incident that made CNN famous even before the Iraq War, and that was um, the boys in Baghdad and or, or Tiananmen Square. It was this little girl in a well in Midland, Texas, and there was a big fight at CNN headquarters. This is in the late 80s. Uh, about whether to keep rolling on the the rescue of a little girl from a well in Texas because the people who ran CNN at the time thought it was I mean they were it was sad yeah but was it news no it was in a, it bleed it leads kind of situation of course you know people who won were not the people who didn't want it it was there it ran and it was a ratings boondoggle and sadly, it set the tone for the idea that this was, you know, a good a good get for the network. Something bad happening like that is good for us as a network. And that, frankly, is what burned me out on, on the news business a long time ago. But a lot of people love it. And obviously, it's way more compelling to watch unfolding action than it is to watch, uh, you know, just the same stories repeated over and over again. On that note, for you know, unfolding action, Ted gets into live sports wrestling. He buys the Atlanta Braves. I, as a sports fan myself, and a kid that's grown up, you know, as an '80s and '90s kid, it's almost unfathomable, you know, unfathomable to not think about sports on TV. And yet, at the same time, that was almost unheard of for Ted to go in and cut deals like that with a major league baseball team or own one more common today where the networks are tied to the team. Um, but baseball fans have been addicted for decades. Why had that never been done prior to Ted in that way? The fact that he bought the team, you mean, or that he broadcast but them both. so often, Notice, you know, live games, which ended up becoming a, a really a national broadcast in the end, as, as you laid out in your book, um, but the idea that, you know, the local baseball team was going to be on TV. I remember when games used to get blacked out, you know, 20 years ago. Now they're on all the time. Um, it was did, did people just say, let's not test the theories and test something and, new? And think how lucky Ted was to be in Atlanta with a baseball team and have your star player be from Portland, Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, first of all, it, you know, Ted was a visionary in the sense that he he recognized, it, let me step back, the idea that, that Ted got so into sports is a huge part of his success, because had he not broadcast the Braves, had he not stolen the transmission of Braves games away from the local affiliate, I think it was the CBS affiliate, WSB, he would not have had this amazing, what we now call today, content on his channel that lured viewers. And when he went up on the satellite initially with Channel 17, regionally at first, it was he was geographically well-positioned because back then, you know, there were no 
teams anywhere else in the, you know, whatever the radius is around Atlanta, where he transmitted via satellite to begin with. So that was an immediate uh, amazing addition for people locally that they got, you know, in Alabama, you could see this, the, the team that you consider to be your local team that you might drive to see once a year. But yeah, you know, you couldn't broadcast live easily before the 70s because of the satellite. So the satellite issue. So to do it was such an enormous difficulty and an expense that, um, that this was, you know, again, he, he showed up at the right time and he had the vision. Um, and he, you know, when he saw that the Braves, which were a terrible team, were about to leave town, he said, no, no. And actually the, the men who owned it came to him and said, we're, we're packing up and we're going, but if you want to pay us to, you know, pay, buy the damn thing, go ahead. Cause we don't want it anymore. So the same way he got the channel, he got the team and um, he didn't know a thing about baseball. All he knew is that that baseball, those baseball games, were helping him sell a lot of ads on his on his little television station. So uh, again, it was a risk-taking moment. It was an opportunistic moment, and it was the confluence of those things with the creation of technology that made it possible. And the regional uh, implications can't be underscored enough. If he had been, I don't even know where else in the country he could have been, that uh, you know, people, people made fun of him being in Atlanta. But the truth is being in Atlanta made it all possible. And that the, yes. the, the Atlanta Braves were an, an enormous, enormous part of that possibility. Yeah, so uh, at that time, uh, there were uh, entrepreneurs in the in the religious arena that understood the, the opportunity in the same way that Ted did. People like Pat Robertson and, and the Bakers uh, they popped up a couple of times in your book. Did they did they just did they just know their audience and dream more, or what caused uh, them uh, in in many ways to, uh, to to ride that wave like Ted did? Well. You know, you go back to Amy Semple McPherson here in Los Angeles with her evangelical church and transmitting over the radio airwaves. You've got the message. You want to spread the message. So you learn the technology that helps you spread that message to the widest possible audience. I mean, look, it's tried and true that when any new technology comes up, communications technology comes up, there's the pornographers and there's the religious people. And then there's everything else. Uh, you know, they're, they're innovators. That, you know, we saw that at the beginning of the internet too. When I was covering the early days of the web, uh, there were the pornographers and there were the religious people, and then there were you know other experimented experimentation going on. Uh, but it's just, I think it's just baked and into. Then, and, and, and then Mark Zuckerberg is going to bring them all together, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so on that experimentation, uh, you know, here's Turner. He's trying to experiment practically everything. He'll beg, borrow, and steal for revenue in the business model, which you point out that he, he does a begathon and, and he actually has success with it. But then the other thing he tries to do is sell goods via TV. And, and this actually, this did work. I, I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about kind of, you know, home shopping network and QVC 1.0, um, which interestingly are all now under kind of a John Malone control. Um, and so I, I, you know, for, on, you know, you think about online shopping, like you point out the new medium that we're in, um, was that home shopping kind of phenomena? Was that just outright exciting? Kind of like internet shopping was in lockdowns. 
Um, and then the second thing is you kind of point out the the Ginsu knives situation. You know, they were selling through Turner's Networks, um, and he was doing it as a royalty model, which. Uh, you know, reading the book, I thought, wow, I, you know, maybe that's a place we haven't gone yet is royalty because fixed pricing really dominates the industry today. Yes. Well, first of all, I have to, this is where I out myself as having worked for QVC when they started Q2, when Barry <laughs> Diller, you know, bought into QVC in that strange time, the whole CBS, QVC, Barry Diller moment in time. And I learned so much working as a producer at Q2. I can't even, and this is right before the web popped, um, the world, the world completely changed. And it was a fascinating, fascinating experience. And when I was writing this book, I couldn't help but think about that experience as I looked at the genius of Ted and these early direct marketers who, um, you know, again, they, they seized the airwaves. It, 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 it happened to be Channel 17. It happened to be uh, UHF stations that had airtime that was easily either bought or bartered uh, from these people who were propagating whatever products, in, as you mentioned, the Ginsu knives, various other things, the pan flute, Zamfir and the pan flute. And, and basically, it's, in, it, it's all about innovation and, you know, and necessity and opportunity. And so these direct marketers uh, needed a way to reach people. People had not typically purchased a product uh, the way, you know, now we purchase everything all the time from the phone, wherever. But then the idea that, you know, I was being advertised to while I was sitting on my couch, uh, and that looked interesting, and all I had to do was reach over and pick up the phone. Wow, how exciting. I'm going to try it. It's such a thrill. You know, somebody's going to show up at my door. Wow. Uh different than a carton of milk or, or a bottle of milk. So, which is the only other thing that would show up at the door besides the newspaper before, well, traveling salesman came too. This brought the traveling salesman into the living room and Ted was game to try it. It, it, it made him money, uh, made him a lot of money. And it made the, the guys who were selling this stuff even more money. And yeah, it was just, it was a perfect marriage, but that was fascinating to read about. I had no, or to learn about, I had no idea uh, although I do remember as a young woman at CNN, when the commercials ran, you would see these these same commercials over and over and over again. Cole's mother ended up with 20 pairs of Birkenstocks. Because of that. <laughs> for, the, for, for the listeners of the podcast, how much of this book is really Ted Turner versus the history of cable TV and cable channels like CNN? Is this big man history or just a key factor in a complex story? A little bit of both. I mean, it's sort of a biography of Ted wrapped around the story of a moment in time that uh, a lot of people helped make happen. And I tried to shout out, or more than shout out, some of the key people who are not famous like Ted Turner, uh, who made it happen. And they're very colorful, wild, risk-taking people. But it was all my effort to understand what happened. You know, why, how did I, as a young woman, pick up, leave New York, go live in Atlanta, work in this old country club? I never, I never asked about this old country club that we worked in. I, I just, you know, went to work every day and collected my meager paycheck and um, we worked crazy hours. So this is sort of my way of making sense of that early history 
Um, and but but it all goes back to Ted because without him and his capital and his risk, uh, it wouldn't have happened. Somebody else would have done it. And they would have done it, like McDonald's. They would, you know, there were people, plenty of people making hamburgers when the McDonald's brothers were making hamburgers. It's just that Ray Kroc came along and had a bigger vision. Yeah, he unfragmented a, a formerly very fragmented industry. So I'm going to read you re- read a quote from the book. Uh, it, it says, "I'm I'm in spiritual and mental pain." He told the reporter, "This is Ted, I believe. When you've worked to build a company for 40 years, and you know all the people." there and one day it's gone well that's a hard transition for anyway it's like taking your pencil away and telling you you can write uh, anymore so i am famous among my friends for uh i i practiced my ted turner interview uh from the aol time warner merger for years uh, and, and he you could tell that he was in complete and total pain that he despised this merger that he hated the fact that steve case was getting a chance to stuff a real company up underneath his dot-com company and buy two years to sell stock. So he said, he, he, he said, well, ah, uh, I'd just like to say, ah, uh, that I'm more excited about this deal, ah, uh, than I was the first time I made love, ah. Uh. <laughs> Could you That's comment good. on this? Well, I can comment on it from a really strangely personal point of view, which is that I was working at MSNBC at that time as an internet correspondent. I'd left the New York Times, and I was the on-air internet correspondent at MSNBC, and the phone, the beeper went off (laughs) before I was supposed to be at work that morning out in Secaucus, New Jersey. And there was, you know, the, my producer saying that this deal had happened. And I said, no, you got it wrong. That, that's not right. It can't be that AOL is buying time. Right? That's not right. It's wrong. And he said, no, no, no. And I'm like, Jeremy, it, it, it's wrong. And I was insistent that he was wrong. Anyway, I got myself out to Secaucus and I, my, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe that what was happening. Um, although, of course, now nothing surprises me any longer. Um, but in writing this book and reflecting on that time and imagining Ted and how, you know, and seeing these reactions, okay, let's be honest. If Ted Turner hadn't started selling away pieces of his business to keep himself going, after the botched deal in the mid 80s with the movie studio and his you know attempt to buy CBS he wouldn't have gotten into this position but he he kept growing uh, I'm not faulting him but I'm just pointing out for the record that he didn't it didn't have to end up this way he didn't have to end up uh, selling out piece by piece by piece to the point where we got you know in in 2000 it it, it it didn't have to be that way. But look, I'm not a visionary entrepreneur, and I don't know what I would have done in that situation. Um, so I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying it's it was really sad to me, palpably sad to me, the way it hadn't been 20-something years earlier to think that, you know, we all have these moments in our lives. If we'd gone this way as opposed to that way, who knows what would have happened? And I can't imagine that he he doesn't or didn't think about that constantly if he hadn't tried to buy MGM and had to you know give up big pieces to the cable companies um, he he could have retained control and who knows who knows what would have happened 
I'll, I'll keep reminding Cole to not make that mistake with our company. Uh, we, it, we, we agree with you. Uh, we agree. And but but let's just let's put on that. You know, people forget we're trying to remember in your work here what actually transpired versus, you know, kind of letting the stock market dictate history uh, as as has kind of taken place. And so pivoting to current affairs and let's assume, Lisa, that you are a visionary. OK, Um how do you look at this Discovery Time Warner media deal? Um, because as you pointed out, th this game's always evolving. We're always going to the next chapter of this content and this distribution. Um, and, and we look at this in many ways as the opposite of the AOL Time Warner, where you have this very futuristic business plugging into a very you know real business. These are businesses that make real money, have been around for a long time in many cases, um, and they're coming together against really technology in isn't, some ways. Isn't David Zaslav a potential uh, player with these kind of ingredients? Don't bet against the phone company. That's all I can say is the phone company. And they're not even the phone company anymore, right? I, You guys know much more about this than I do. Um, but yes, everything sort of cycles, just like politics, everything cycles around. Oh, actually, I shouldn't even say that because nothing really is, everything's, all bets are off, everything's different, but I really do believe that everything cycles around and the tried and true uh, big, big companies are always going to win out. And, you know, you can start something great and sell it to something bigger and greater. And that seems to be the way to go. But it, but in terms of what's next, you you all tell me. I want to know. I want to be on the cutting edge since I've got your ear. Uh, if if we had the perfect answer to that, Lisa, I don't think we'd be chatting with you right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're 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 you know we're we're testing the theories. Um, so as as you know, the other thing that I walked away from, and maybe this is an idea for you. I'm hoping you know maybe I'll try and play the visionary now. Um, we're we're big John Malone fans at our firm. Uh, John and Ted had a lot of you know commingling, similar investments. They you know John provided capital to Ted at times, um, and many of these Turner assets have ended up in Malone and his investors' hands. I think of Liberty Braves. Um, you know all this stuff has kind of come anew under John Malone. Have you ever thought about writing about Malone? Because so much of your writing has been, you know, I've seen other writing, your, your, your other works are, you know, around the media realm. And I kind of look at, you know, John Malone could be your poster child for your next Ted-esque book, but it's more current to today. He is, an, he, yes. And, and John rescued Ted. He didn't just invest in Ted, but he rescued Ted. Um, he would be a fascinating subject. Um, Maybe he'd hire me. Maybe I could. I could come. <laughs> hmm. I yeah. And, you know and, what? And, <laughs> and he was the guy. He was the guy that put the cable system in Colorado and Wyoming. All those godforsaken. Yeah. All those. Places. All those people that he consolidated. He created a lot of those the people. cable industry by 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 multiplying those venues. Absolutely. No. 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 Reading about him, I always had to hold myself back because I couldn't go too far down the rabbit hole. But I always wanted to know more and you know my challenge is as we sort of started talking about before is what kind of book you can sell it was really really hard for me to sell this book to find a publisher for this book because it wasn't about the polarizing nature of cable news um so i was so thrilled that you read it and were interested in talking about it and giving a new audience to it because it, it isn't something that naturally was 
going to find a publisher. So I'm not so sure a book about Malone is fascinating as he is. Maybe if they turn this, this book has been optioned. So maybe if Up All Night gets turned into a limited series, I can advise them to make sure that John Malone is sort of like the guardian angel in the wings. And there's a whole thread about him on the side because he's so, so fascinating. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe what's going to happen next is with CNN Plus, maybe maybe the Property Brothers are going to have their own show on CNN Plus or Joanna. Chip and Joanna are going to – they're the people who rule the world now anyhow. So I, I don't know. I don't know. That's all I can say. I just don't know. It, it sounds like you're more of a visionary than you kind of made out earlier, Lisa. What everyone, what everyone needs, Lisa, is a 90-day fiancé. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that one yet. My mother and I just love watching HGTV. I'll just have to say that out here. So, um, but 90 Day Fiance, I don't think I could convince her to do. She's that's, too cynical. That's, that's a little different audience, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we're not the demographic for that one. Well, I, I think we want to thank Lisa and, and uh, just... Yeah, very much so. And, and we've absolutely loved our conversation today. I hope you've, you've had a good time as well, Lisa, is there anything uh, kind of as a, as, as a last takeaway that you'd want listeners to understand or, or something that we haven't um, caught yet in our discussion? Oh, boy. No, you guys are great. You're very thorough. I'm so grateful. I just want to remind people, just buy my book and give it away or something like that because we need to sell it to show. And there's a great new cover of the paperback with Ted on the cover. We just need to show the publisher that people really are interested in this history. And I promise that this history is is even more engaging than I hope we've made it here today. I'm, I'm just so grateful for your interest in it and for but your we, work, your bigger work. So thank you. We agree with you. Uh, I was trying to think about, you know, what I took away from this. And, and our, my bias, Lisa, just so you know, is I love studying billionaires. It's one of the things that we do in our work. And so, you know, just seeing Ted, knowing some of the history really drew me into it. But the other thing, and I'll, I'll throw this to Bill also, the other thing I think I took away from your book is I think your book helped me understand Netflix. And what I mean by that is the newness of, you know, cable news, the newness of cable itself, newness is actually what drives a lot of consumer demand um, in the end because it's something different. It's a differentiated product. And for years, I thought, gosh, there's just there's so much garbage on Netflix. And then I realized, but there was so much garbage on Turner Networks, too. But it was something to watch at three in the morning. And and now you can watch it on demand. That was my big takeaway, Bill. What, what did you have? Are you calling Petticoat Junction garbage? <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic. Uh, you're darn right it is. In fact, uh, <laughs> so, so, yes, no, Lisa, absolutely. I mean, everybody needs to read a lot more, and what they need is they need great topics and great writing, and we, we think you have done that. Yeah, Thank we, you we really so appreciate much. it. Well, I'm happy to come back and talk about Ray Kroc and his crazy wife, Joan Kroc, anytime you want. So We will most definitely probably take you up on that. Yeah, well, back, to, back to people who've got ridiculously wealthy. So um, I want to thank all of our listeners today on the podcast uh, for joining us. I want to thank Lisa. Um, I want to thank Bill for guest hosting this for me and with me and having some fun uh, between uh, dad and son. Um, to go back to what Lisa said, you should go find her book. It's up all night. It's this story of Ted Turner, CNN, and 24-hour news, like we talked about. Um, her other books that you can find out there is 
Ray and Joan. As we mentioned, that's about Ray Kroc, and she gave a great teaser to that throughout the podcast. Um, and we'll look forward to that. And then her newest book, which was just published this, is it this last year, Lisa, that that's, this is published? Yeah, Susan, Lindy, Nina, and Koki, the story about the founders and mothers of NPR. Um, we will definitely take you up on having you back. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Um, we appreciate all the podcast listeners, and we look forward to the next episode. Thanks so much. And maybe we should end by all going, doing our, our Ted Turner. Aww. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Bless us. Bye-bye. Thanks, you guys. You too. You too. Be safe. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.